One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is cartoonist and writer Tim Kreider, author of the book of essays, We Learn Nothing, and cartoon collections, Twilights of the Assholes, Why Do They Kill Me, and The Pain, When Will It End? His cartoon, The Pain, When Will It End, ran for 12 years in the Baltimore City Paper and other alternative weeklies. His newest essay collection is called I Wrote This Book Because I Love You and focuses on his various relationships with women who were his friends, lovers, ex-girlfriends, students, travel pals, and even one feline, his beloved cat. We began the interview discussing why Kreider chose to write about these relationships at this moment in his life. There's probably two answers to that. There's the ostensible reason I did it, and then there's the real reason, which I'm probably way less aware of. Um, I mean, for one thing, this is my second collection of essays, and, you know, there's something akin to second album syndrome where you've exhausted all your A material in the first book. And as it worked out, even though I didn't go into that book with the intention of um, having an overarching theme, it ended up by default being about friendships. And so for the second book, well, what do you do? You can either go on some gimmicky adventure and write about that or do what I chose to do, which is go deeper and confront the stuff that you were too squirmy to, to go into in the first book and try to avoid you know, stories that you flinched from writing, which in my case were mostly about uh, romantic relationships. And also I cynically figured maybe they'd give me more money for a book that had um, an easily pitched concept. You know, the real reason is probably that uh, it was stuff I was grappling with in my own life. Um, I think you can only 
well, if you're lucky, you can only live with your same dumb self-defeating patterns of behavior for so long before they start to exhaust you and um, you try to face up to them and figure out what, why do you keep doing this? Um, and so I think that this book was part of that process for me, not to say that writing is therapy. I think um, the therapy should <laughs> probably come first so that you're, you're not burdening the reader with it. I mean, writing is for the reader, not for you, the writer. So I feel like we're in a time in our society where the female voice is really screaming to be heard. Everything mm -hmm. from sort of the Me Too campaign to, you know, just making less money at work. I'm just sort of curious about, you know, this voice from a male right now. And if you ever thought, oh, is is this the time for this? What can I add to this discussion? How can I illuminate what it's like for men? I'm just wondering if you thought about that at all. Well, this book was pretty much written uh, by the time the Me Too movement started. I mean, it's not like gender politics wasn't a minefield before Me Too. Um, I was certainly mindful of that. And with the shame machine of the internet, I think every artist constantly imagines all the angry, humorless, dogmatic people of the internet reading over their shoulders at all times and second guesses themselves accordingly. So, you know, I thought about gender politics a good deal in writing this, in some essays more than others. Yeah, I recently told, <laughs> um, I, I was guest lecturing for a, a friend's class to some aspiring writers. And I told them this has been pretty much the worst year in history to be a white male, but it's still pretty awesome, still better than being anything else. But yeah, it's not a great year to be a straight white male writer. Pretty much no one wants to hear what you have to say. But you know, like everyone else, I am stuck being the person I am. And I'm not gonna stop writing. And unless me too wants men just to shut up forever, which I don't think anybody really does. I think what they want is for men to do some of the self-reflection and introspection that I've tried to do in this book. I certainly don't try to make myself out to be attractive or admirable at all times in this book. I try to be honest, uh, among other things. So I'm not holding myself up as any kind of exemplar of behavior. I'm trying, though, I think, to exemplify the sort of um, self-scrutiny that I think <laughs> everyone ought to be doing. When you were writing this or when you were turning it in, do you ask yourself, because there's this part of being a writer that's just the creative part where you'll just sit down and write, but then there's the reader part and that interaction. So do you ask yourself when you write these essays, why should people care? Like, why, why do people want to read this? Does that enter your mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I give an infamous talk to my writing students, first or second class, the, the famous um, no one cares what you think or you are not special talk. <laughs> I, I think that writing about yourself is a really embarrassing thing to do. It's so adolescent and self-absorbed that you had better have an ironclad justification for why this was worth the reader's time. And I think that trying to demonstrate that you have had a, a cool, fascinating, adventuresome life or that you had um, an unbelievably effed up childhood is not anywhere near enough. Like I said, you would better be giving the reader more um, than you're getting out of writing something.
So my MO is always to try to figure out what is universal in my experience. What can other people use? Which often means that the, the more interesting the story, the harder it is to turn into an essay. Uh, like the, the one of the harder essays to write in the book was the one about um, posing as someone's husband and riding the Ringling Brothers circus train to Mexico City. Um, I mean, that makes a cool story to tell in bars, but um, what is that besides a cool story? Uh, and it took me several decades to figure it out. I really, I, I wrote the first draft of that essay almost 30 years ago now. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tim Kreider, cartoonist and essayist and author of The Pain, When Will It End? And most recently, I wrote this book because I love you. Well, I think there was like different sort of tropes and energies that came out from these essays. So, for instance, you had mentioned the first one, Death Defying Acts, when you traveled with your friend who you call Annie to Mexico to be with her. She was a teacher in the circus, in the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. But to mm-hmm. me, a lot of that essay was about mortality. So on the surface, you're on this train. It's easy to be lured in as a reader because it's so interesting about to learn about the pie car where people eat and the adventures you have. But really, you and Annie had this relationship where she was sick and then she wasn't sick. And you would imagine your death with each other. You had these sort, sort of games that you play. So I'm curious mm-hmm. about that, about folding in this idea of mortality into this essay that in some ways is is lighthearted, even though you went to Mexico to make sure Annie didn't die there um, right. due to dangers. Can you talk about that that mixture? I love that essay because it's it's one of the, the lighter and funnier ones in the book, but it is all about death. But, you know, I started out as a cartoonist and it's our instinct to be funny about the darkest things. I, I like your use of the word lured because I felt very consciously that that's what I was trying to do with this book is... Uh, Even though it seemed like a good angle commercially to write a book about relationships, I also secretly suffer from this worry that relationships are a really silly, frivolous, trivial thing to write about, um, especially now that we live in a a dystopia. So I try to lure you in with a book of essays about relationships, but they're all, I hope, also essays about something else, Uh, something, I don't want to say more serious or or larger, because after all, it's possible that relationships are the most serious thing going on in life, but something a little less um, sexy, you know, like mortality or like war or religion. Um, they're, they're all kind of uh, double exposure essays. I mean, it's sort of my MO to mash two seemingly disparate things together, like mortality in the circus train story or like uh, protesting the war in Iraq and accidentally falling in love with a friend and then see what those things have to do with each other. How do they connect up? Which is not, by the way, a procedure I recommend to young writers. It's a terrible, inefficient trial and error process. You studied writing in school and then you became a cartoonist. So what was the yes. what was the transition for you back to writing essays? And I, I'm really curious about the the symbolism of using art and pictures and not being able to rely on pictures and going back to language. And was that a tricky transition for you to, to do that? 
I, I wish that I was a good enough artist that I could integrate writing and drawing and do graphic novels, but I don't really know how to do that. I used to be a single panel cartoonist. So cartoon ideas came to me in the form of single images of, of one metaphor. That's what a cartoon is, is a metaphor, a visual metaphor, like a dream symbol. And essay ideas are just seem to come in very different form. It seems to be two different parts of my brain. I find writing a lot less satisfying. For one thing, just because drawing is more fun. You know, kids love drawing. It's physically more fun to put lines on paper and see something there that wasn't there when you started. And I'm primarily a visual person. It's easy for me to look at a cartoon and tell whether it's done, does it suck? Whereas with writing, whoever knows, is this book any good? I couldn't tell you. And also, I just think visual art is a pure medium. I recently saw um, a silent film, Lucky Star. I can't even describe it to you because it's so sappy and ridiculous that if I told you the plot, you'd laugh. But seeing it in a theater, it made everyone in the audience want to stand up cheering and weeping because I think that the lack of dialogue doesn't engage the rational side of your brain. You know, it doesn't engage the uh, left brain and it gets under your skin into your subconscious the same way dreams do. And I think that cartoons at their best can, can do that. You know, I had people write me over the years. I was a very left-wing political cartoonist. And some people said, you know, at first I didn't agree with anything you said, but I had to admit you were funny. It cracked me up. And uh, then you got me thinking. Um, and that was always kind of the strategy. I, I always tried to be funny rather than uh, politically trenchant. And I think that image just goes straight to, uh, to where, we, where we dream and feel. And I don't know, language is so mediated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real imperfect medium. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tim Kreider, cartoonist and essayist and author of The Pain, When Will It End? And most recently, I wrote this book because I love you. So you said in one of your essays, the older I get, the less life makes sense. Does that make it harder to be a writer as you age? In some ways, yeah. I mean, I think that there are certain patterns that are more obvious to me now uh, in, in human behavior. But all the really big questions, I think if you're at all a smart, reflective person, age and experience tempers and qualifies the kind of passionate idealism and that you feel when you're young. I mean, you know, young people are 
really absolutist. They're dogmatic. They know what's right and what's wrong. There's not a lot of gray zones for them. At least that's how I remember it. And that's sort of what I see in the world. And then the older you get, the more, you know, qualified and tentative and <laughs> riddled with caveats and qualifications, everything becomes. Um, and it gets harder and harder to say what happened and why and what any of it meant. So I think you get maybe a lot more cautious and second guess yourself about trying to say anything true, which I don't know if you're writing for any purpose other than to amuse or entertain is somewhere in the back of your mind, a, a concern saying something true. I'm just thinking out loud, but it occurs to me that, and I think I've seen this happen to other writers too. You get a little bit impatient with all the artifices of art. I remember at some point, Kurt Vonnegut said, I'm not going to put on any more puppet shows. You start to feel like if you've gotten any kind of glimpse of what's going on in the world, you feel time getting short and you just want to say what you think. You just want to tell people what you think is going on in this world, <laughs> which doesn't, I'm afraid, make for very artful writing. Well, I think part of what you said about being a cartoonist and that cartoons are metaphorical that metaphor sometimes is so much easier to understand things than when you had when you go straight on. The essay that you mentioned, Our War on Terror, is a is a good example of that where on one <clears throat> hand you were talking about this friend Lauren who you met who was a cartoonist who you fell in love with, but she was married and it seemed like a very real love from your point of view. And at the same time the war on terror was going on. It was 9-11 had just happened. Um, George W. Bush was setting our own war and, and starting to attack these other countries. And, and you're going back and forth between this confusion that you have and the war going on. Can you talk a little bit just about this essay and writing it? Oh, what a nightmare it was. I mean, this is why I warn <laughs> other writers away from my uh, MO of just trying to mash two disparate subjects together and see if they stick. I mean, there's an, there's a, there's an exercise I do in class when I teach writing where I um, hand out two stacks of cards with single words on them. And, and one stack has concrete nouns like cobwebs or Legos, and the other has abstract nouns like regret or democracy. And the assignment is they each get one at random from each pile. And the assignment is write a paragraph explaining how these two things are the same. Which you can do with pretty much anything. You can finesse it with rhetoric. But uh, the real question is, well, is there a real connection? I mean, do they actually have anything to do with each other? And, you know, the risk in taking a few years to try to write a 20-page essay doing that is that they don't really have much in common and you're faking it and we'll have to just scrap the whole thing. I had thought for a long time about writing about that relationship because I think it's a very common experience that you get inappropriately attached to somebody who's unavailable and you then have to either uh, it either destroys that relationship or you have to figure your way out back out the way you came or else through it and find your way back to some sort of relationship you can both live with um, and we successfully did that and I thought it might be worth telling other people about how that happened after I read Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, I had this idea of writing kind of a ground-level emotional history of the war on terror years, like 9-11 and a decade after. Like just what it felt like to be in a nation-state going berserk with bloodlust, which is yet another common experience and seemed well worth writing about. But it wasn't until I thought, well, maybe those two essays are the same essay that I undertook to write them. 
um, and it was a slow, painstaking slog. And uh, my first editor on this book, John Cox, helped me quite a lot with distilling what was essential about and, and what was common to both those experiences. And the two words that I mentally taped up on the wall were idealism and futility. Uh, it, it turned into an essay about falling in love with someone you're never going to be with while protesting a war you're no way going to stop. And why are you doing those things? And it's about finding your way toward more realistic and more realizable ways of engaging with both love and politics. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tim Kreider, cartoonist and essayist and author of The Pain, When Will It End? And most recently, I wrote this book because I love you. One of my favorite essays in the book was called Orientation. and Oh, thank you for saying so. It was the hardest one in ways. It's really close to the end of the book. So as we've gotten to that point, we've learned about your relationships with friends you've fallen in love with. We've learned about your relationships with your cat. We learned about your relationship with a prostitute who was a fan, who you had a week-long liaison with, but you remain friends. And then we get to orientation where you're teaching at a, a school called Scott College where a majority of your students are female and you're musing about, you know, you're not much older than them. You can't fall for them. You can't have sex with them. And, and yet at the same time, they're so open with you. You have one student that tells you she likes to take her clothes off all the time. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about this essay. Um, well, this is the essay I was primarily thinking of when you asked about um the Me Too movement and whether I was self-conscious at all as a uh, man writing a book about relationships right now. Um, I mean, I undertook to write this before Me Too was a thing, but like I said, I mean, sexual politics was a freaking mess before that anyway. Um, And so I was certainly conscious of the possibility that I would be widely perceived as a predatory creep or at the very least a jerk. Um, because I was writing, among other things, about having had an affair with a much younger woman, not a student, but who years later came to feel that she had been taken advantage of. Not that it wasn't consensual, just that she hadn't really known what she was doing at the time, which, of course, made me defensive and angry and also secretly feel scared and shamed. And this is all extremely tricky stuff to write about. It's very difficult to strike a tone that is neither self-justifying or self-flagellating. And this was yet another essay where I was determined to put together two things that in my mind seemed connected, um, but were not necessarily clearly connected to anybody else. And that was getting this email from this young woman um, around the same time that I'd started teaching for the first time in my life. And I was teaching college students who were about the same age she had been back when we were involved. And to me, it it felt compellingly of a piece, but that's not necessarily evident to a reader. And um, oddly, my formal model in writing this essay was something that was, uh, in terms of the content, utterly unrelated. I kept thinking about Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, which is formally a very weirdly bifurcated film. Well, the first 40 minutes, you know, are set in boot camp. And 
And the rest of the film is set in Vietnam. And narratively, they have just about nothing to do with each other. And um, whether that film succeeds formally or not is up for debate. But I kept thinking about that. I wanted to do something like that with this essay. And finally, I had to give up on my plan, which was just to have them be two completely separate, discrete chunks. And I integrated them a little bit. But that is what happened with that. And it was just a nightmare to get right tonally um, because I ran it by a lot of um, my friends who are readers, most of whom are female. And a couple of them just could not get past that relationship. They felt like too many female readers would have been in situations like that where they felt exploited by older, more powerful men and would just turn against me and never get back on board with me as author. And so I fretted about it and argued with them and it felt like a referendum on my character and <laughs> like a reflection on our friendships. And I rewrote to try to satisfy them. And uh, in the end, I just had to accept that some readers are never going to like this essay and there's nothing I can do about that. So um, at some point you've got to make an executive call about how many people you are willing to offend or lose <laughs> by telling your version of the truth. You know, a lot of the essays in your book have to do with, I mean, some of them are sexual escapades, some are friends with benefits, some are, you know, relationships you don't consummate sexually, but you, you do indicate through your childhood and everything, you seem to have some sort of long-term commitment issues. But it is mm -hmm. always really easy to get into relationships. It's much, much harder to get out. And you yeah. had uh, a student, your student, I think her name was Gina, who said, you know, she, she takes her clothes off all the time. But then she said to you, bearing yourself emotionally, that's really scary. And she's talking about that versus taking her clothes off. That's the point is, is that it's easy to get naked with people. It's easy to go on a train ride with people. It's probably easy to protest people. But to bear your soul is so much harder as a writer, as someone in relationships, mm -hmm. in intimacy. So to me, that line in that essay is also summing up maybe one of the underlying themes of, of what you're getting at with a lot of this. I love that it happens from a basically a teenage girl. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that student was uh, an actress, I should clarify. Um, and so, and therefore an exhibitionist. And so, yeah, she was talking about getting naked mostly on stage, although not exclusively. Um, and this was no big deal for her, but yeah, like she said, burying yourself emotionally is, um, scary, both in life and in writing. I mean, showing someone a first draft is, for me, much more embarrassing and fraught with anxiety than, you know, getting naked and sleeping with them. Because the first draft is likely to, you know, show off who you are in all sorts of humiliating and unattractive ways. <laughs> I mean, writing is still a very cowardly and controlled way of burying yourself because you get months or years to refine it and make sure it comes out the way you want it to, um, which is why interviews are so nerve wracking for writers because you just, you know, your first draft gets published. And, you know, it's also true that bearing your soul in a heart to heart conversation with a friend over drinks is still not really the same as burying yourself in the involuntary way that you do when you live with someone for years. 
because they get to see all kinds of horrible things about you that you would rather hide. You know, they get to see how you are when you are tired or irritable or complaining about work for the thousandth time or you're caught in a lie. They get to see the parts of you you would <laughs> rather not be seen. But as I said in one of those essays, there's a line along the lines of to, to if you want the rewards of being loved, you have to risk the mortification mortifying ordeal of being known. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Tim Kreider, cartoonist and essayist and author of The Pain, When Will It End? And most recently, I wrote this book, Because I Love You. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I would like you to know that I'm not reading this. I'm reciting it. I, I like to memorize passages of literature. I make my students do the same thing because I think that you absorb other writers' prose rhythms through reading them, and it's good for you to have those things in your head. Uh, I'm a big believer in things like euphony and cadence in prose. So uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is sort of a cliche, but it's such a famous passage, but truly I love it. Most of the big shore places were closed now. And there were hardly any lights except for the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until I gradually became aware of the old island here that had flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, the fresh green breast of a new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, forced into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. So obviously this is from The Great Gatsby. The last page of The Great Gatsby. So tell me why this is what you chose and 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 over your life, why this is what you memorized. Well, I've memorized kind of a lot of passages, uh, a lot of endings in particular. Endings are a nice opportunity for the author to swing for the fences linguistically. Um, I, I used to know the last section of Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. I know the ending of Dispatches by Michael Hare. You know, Hunter Thompson also loved that page. He said he used to type it out just to know what it felt like in his fingers to type such great prose. I admire euphony and cadence. I, I, I also read translations of the Greek dramatists and of Beowulf um, when I was writing my first book because those authors used assonance rather than rhyme. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to study that and get the feel for it. Um, I really admire the the lyric grandeur of that language. Um, I mean, obviously it's inextricable from the content, which is about um, America, human aspirations. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know, in the 20th century, most American writing has followed the traditions of uh, either Hemingway, which is this very spare, terse, manly prose, or uh, of Faulkner, which is you know sprawling and ornate, and not so much in the tradition of Fitzgerald. I think 
possibly just because he's harder to imitate without risking sounding pretentious or stupid. Um, you know, shooting for the moon that way with your pros, you know, that going for that kind of grandeur is uh, chancy. Because if you fail, you're gonna you're gonna look stupid. <laughs> um, but uh, I when I when I got a book deal for the first time, I figured this might be it. This is my one chance to step out into the arena with Thucydides and Fitzgerald and the rest of them. So let's swing for the freaking fences. And I do try to write a nice lyric ending now and then. Well, can you share something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or change from the first draft or just something that you like? Yeah, you know, your your first two categories are way more interesting. But the first thing that came to mind was something rather show-offy, I'm afraid, because, well, it only seems show-offy. This is a passage I wrote that I can't believe I wrote. Um, I, I have to confess a private despair that there was nothing in my most recent book that I felt quite did this same thing. There, there are lines in this passage that felt like they came to me, you know, and I'm not religious or even mystical, but it's the sort of thing that makes you believe in muses um, where you write a line and it's better than a line you could have written. And you know that, <laughs> um, you know, maybe, maybe I just stole it from somewhere without remembering it. Maybe that's what happened. But um, this is the ending of the second to last essay in my last book, it's called Sister World, and it was about the experience of meeting my two half-sisters. So again, the form is indissoluble from the content. These are two young women who are very dear to me, and uh, that shows in the prose. But I'll, I'll just read you this last paragraph. But I hope we won't forget how we looked to one another in those first days of discovery when we learned we weren't alone. The summer we met, Amy and I took a half-sibling field trip together to see a show of astronomical photographs at the National Air and Space Museum. We saw Mercury silhouetted against the inferno of the sun, a pebble cast into a lake of fire. The deranged landscape of Miranda, a little world shattered and imperfectly rejoined. And Saturn's rings arcing across its limb like fine hairs against the curve of the cheek. It emerged that Amy had never touched the moon rock before. So we stood in line with all the other earthlings and waited our turn to run our fingers over its glassy surface, smoothed to a warm polish by millions of fingers before ours. Later, over oysters and beer at Old Epic Grill, we were considering a stuffed walrus head on the wall above us when a man at the bar next to Amy said, I see you're admiring my ex-wife. And as Amy threw back her head in delight, I caught a startling glimpse of my own laughter in hers. Seeing my own goofy expressions transposed into beauty in her face, was like seeing those filigreed blue shadows fall over Saturn's lambent clouds. Yes, the sky is cool. Touching that piece of lunar basalt brought from a quarter million miles away was not stranger or more marvelous to me than the touch of my sister's finger. We've all touched the moon rock. What gives us that faint interplanetary chill of awe is not the commonplace matter, but the knowledge that it's come back to us from such an abyssal distance, from someplace that was torn from us long ago, a place we've always looked to with wonder and yearning, but never dreamt we would ever really go. I mean, I almost, I, I don't, I don't even feel proud of that in a way. I feel like I transcribed it from someplace. <laughs> I, I hope other writers know what I mean by that. Where do you write? Uh, well, I wrote my first book of essays largely in the vast ornate reading room um, of the New York Public Library. 
on 42nd Street. And I was a little less disciplined about the second one. I wrote some of it there, but the reading room was closed for several years for renovations. So I wrote some of it in the map room there and then just, I don't know, some of it at home, some of it at my cabin in Maryland. I just, I felt like I was never not writing it. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, I'm almost always away from writing. (laughs) Um, Though, of course, when you use your own life as raw material, you're also never away from writing. I mean, I'm I'm sort of torn between ambition and uh, wanting to enjoy my actual life while it's going on. So I would really much rather spend a day drinking beers and, and talking and laughing with friends than writing, um, which I do as often as possible. But, of course, a lot of good material comes out of that. So maybe that's not getting away from it at all. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I mean, there's sort of a succession of readers I have who are like um, – they're like bosses in a video game or ogres in a fairy tale or the last and most fearsome one who is my friend, Myla Goldberg, the novelist is safe for last. But first, maybe I send it to my agent, Meg Thompson, who is a relentless cheerleader for me and loves everything I write. Cause I definitely need that validation in order to show it to the next person. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, for a long time, I wasn't really trying seriously to be a writer. So I didn't have a whole lot of experience with sending manuscripts out and getting them rejected. It does still happen to me. In fact, recently I wrote a long essay on Twin Peaks, The Return, which I could not get anyone to publish anywhere. And I would say that I am just as surly and self-pitying and resentful about it as any 22-year-old sending her first short story out. And what is your favorite word? So uh, this question stumped me for a long time. I wouldn't say I have a favorite, but, you know, a word I've been thinking about a lot recently, and it's because I came across it and I realized I don't use that enough, is immense. You know who likes immense? Joseph Conrad. He loves to call things immense. Um, It has a kind of weight um, that, say, the word vast doesn't. Vast is better for voids, for distance. Uh, for space, whereas immense has got this tremendous weight and mass to it. So I've kind of got it in the back of my mind, like note to self, use immense. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Tim Kreider, cartoonist, an essayist, an author of The Pain, When Will It End? And most recently, I wrote this book because I love you. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.